As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's Justin Briley bringing you the program where I get to sit down with renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright each week and ask him the questions that you've asked. Brought to you in partnership with N.T. Wright Online and SBCK and of course Premier for whom I'm the theology and apologetics editor. And today on the show we're talking patriarchy and the Bible. Is the gendered language often used for God as father a problem? And what about those who struggle to relate to God as a father figure because of maybe past abuse of a human father and and how should we pray to God as well is it as a father or as Jesus or, or what so lots of questions coming up on today's podcast thanks so much to Sophie who gets in touch uh, and has actually left a, a rating and a review uh, of the podcast says this has been so helpful for me of course nothing should ever replace bible reading but this gives me so much motivation to read my bible by giving historical background and more knowledge to show Jesus who has changed my life to others thank you so much for this podcast and sharing all your knowledge great to know that you're listening along sophie god bless you um, if you're enjoying the podcast as well do rate and review us in itunes or wherever you get your podcast from helps others to find out about the show and if you want more from us including regular updates bonus content and all the good stuff from the show askntwrite.com is the place to sign up right now let's get into your questions today Well, we often talk in some form or another about issues around gender and identity, uh, as they are so frequently issues in today's culture, aren't they, Tom? But specifically, we've got questions today on the Bible's use of gender, especially when it comes to, to God. Um, and, uh, well, why don't we, we limp, leap straight, straight in? This is uh, from Tim in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in the US uh, and says, Dear Tom, why should we accept the Bible's gendered pronouns and imagery as they have been historically translated. I have a disagreement with a friend who wants to use more feminine, inclusive language when referring to the God of Scripture, like she and mother and queen. I've argued that God knows what he's doing when he uses patriarchal imagery, like king and um, father, and we can trust him with that sort of language, even despite a historical and societal oppressive masculinity. Um, uh, and you go and say here, Tim, I've even gone so far as to use the woke rhetoric that God's preferred pronouns are he, him. And we ought to respect that. But what might be the pitfalls or benefits, if any, to willingly swapping gendered attributes 
into scripture okay well this is a this is a hot potato if ever there was one tom so how do you want to handle it yes it, it, it is a hot potato, though it's been around quite a while. I mean, uh, mm. I first ran into this, ooh, 30 or more years ago. Um, uh, and around then, professors in seminaries in North America, at least, were not infrequently requiring that students should not use he, him for God. And indeed, they would refuse to mark or mark down essays that contain such things. Um, so th- this is this is hardly, hardly a new thing. Um, uh, obviously, this comes out of a deep-seated cultural revulsion against the arrogance and often violence of a male-dominated world. Now, the world has not always been male-dominated. There have been societies which have been matriarchal societies. There have been whole cities which have had female-dominated religion, like ancient Ephesus with its temple of Diana um, or Artemis with its female-only priesthood, etc. So we shouldn't buy into the myth that says that everybody until the modern feminist movement has been entirely under the sway of, uh, of the patriarchy. However, um, it is undoubtedly the case that um, the natural human tendency to exploit who we are has led to um, men being normally slightly more uh, more physically strong, whatever, than women, and to organize the world around their needs and desires rather than those of the women, that that's how it has been perceived for many, many people, and still is. And the whole Me Too movement, etc., is a way of saying, hang on, you men have been getting away with sometimes literally murder, but certainly a lot of other things, for far too long, and we're just going to say no to it, thank you very much. Now, when you're faced with that, I can understand that for some people, just the notion of a he, a father, a big, strong authority figure sends shivers down the spine and makes people think, um, no, I've lived my life in terror for such a, a being and I don't want to go on with it anymore. Rather as, and I know this is a hugely contentious thing, um, when I was first in Israel, I lived in Israel for three months in 1989, one of my Palestinian Anglican clergy friends explained to me that there were some psalms that Palestinians couldn't sing because they were about Israel beating up her enemies. And he said, you know, my people are being beaten up by Israeli soldiers all the time, and we simply can't sing these psalms. And that may be a shame, but that's who we are. I understand that, that for some people, some of the time, a certain reticence may be appropriate. That said, there are passages in Scripture where God is portrayed with female imagery, and this is well known, and people have written about it this way and that. But in Isaiah, when um, God says that I'm like somebody, going, like a woman going into labor, I'm going to gasp and pant because my new creation needs to be born, and, and I'm right there giving birth to it, etc. And that is picked up, interestingly, in a passage I referred to in a different podcast, um, in the language Paul uses about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, where where he talks about creation groaning in labor pains, and then the church within creation groaning in labor pains, and then the spirit within the church also groaning in labor pains. And so I remember 20, 30 years ago doing a Bible exposition in a big public place where I said that if we were to translate this um, to bring that out, we would say that the spirit herself groans within us. And indeed, because the Hebrew word ruach, 
which is what we translate as spirit, is a feminine noun, and its cognates in Syriac and Aramaic are, are feminine, some of the early Syriac fathers thought of the Holy Spirit as, if you like, the feminine side or member or something of the Godhead. Um, that's something we should be very, very careful about. But I think we, we want to be aware that there is more mystery there than we might sometimes have imagined. And that if we do use continually the language of he, him, which, which I certainly do because that's, um, it, it causes all sorts of problems if you don't go that route, um, linguistic as well as other problems, then um, this shouldn't blind us to the fact that as classical theists have always said, God is beyond gender. Jesus is a male human being. There's no question about that. God the Father is not masculine or male in that same sense. The Spirit is not masculine or male in that same sense. At this point, we are in a very mysterious world. The question then is partly a cultural thing. Are we, in fact, making it harder for people to approach in love and gratitude the God of Scripture by using certain language? Or is it then a matter of educating them to say, no, um, actually, this will redeem the idea of fatherhood. This might redeem the idea of, of maleness itself. And maybe part of the humility of the gospel is to learn that. It's very, very difficult for me mm. as an elderly mm. white male to say all this kind of thing. But that's where I think the issue sits right now. And I, I understand and respect people who say, I just can't use this language at the moment. But it does produce very odd um, reformulations if you try yes. to get rid of all genderedness. I mean, on a slightly separate issue, I, I frequently use the NRSV, um, which is um, essentially gender inclusive in, in large parts, at least where it's referring to things like where you might get in some translations, dear brethren, uh, yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the brothers or whatever. It will say... Yeah. Uh, brothers and sisters um yeah. i mean how do you feel about those kinds of changes to scripture yeah. um, to, to bring out a sort of more inclusive i've tried to do way? that myself um i would i think i've translated my own translation i've translated um uh the 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 brethren word as my dear family and it seems mm. to me that is what paul means at the same time i notice that in say the pentecost passage in acts 2 um uh, Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost um, the, the, the passage which says your sons and your daughters will prophesy and so on. So sons doesn't necessarily include daughters and mm. that, that sometimes you may want to say both. So I think in the ancient world, the usage slides to and fro. I don't think they're as bothered about it as we are. Um, and I, I think we ought, again, to be careful. I'm perfectly happy to cash out where, until very recently, actually, it's a very, very modern thing, probably as recently as the late 1970s, the early 1980s, when people suddenly realized that if I look out at a congregation and say, now, my brothers, um, that the women will think, well, what about us then? Because mm. until the late 70s, early 80s, that wasn't the case. Women were quite used to the word brothers being a, a universal address. And likewise, the word man and men mm. did not used to offend people, um, did not used to offend either men or women, um, as though it was specific to males. Yes. But we, Whereas you might find more frequently these days people tending to use humankind yes, instead yes. of mankind. It's interesting. So C.S. Lewis does that. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Lewis is a very, very... 
um, highly sophisticated user of words, when he talks about human and humankind, um, I think he's realized already there might just be a problem about going with the older usage. Yes, there you go. Um, look, let's get into some of the, the sort of specifics of how at an emotional level this works. And you've sort of already hinted at this in your first answer, Tom, but Michael in Melbourne, Australia, um, says, I apologise for the length of this question, and I know Tom Wright cannot act as my pastor. However, I believe my struggle and question may be relevant for other listeners. I grew up with a punitive, angry father and an emotionally neglectful mother. I have a significant struggle with trust as a result. So how can I heal from my distrust of God, who I often see as responsible for not stepping in and protecting me as a vulnerable child? Is he punishing me to the third and fourth generation for the sins of my parents and grandparents? Is it my responsibility to pick myself up and muster some faith and blindly trust? My wife encourages me that God sat with me in that place of abuse as a child and grieved. Even if that is true, it seems to me that God is holding me responsible for not having faith and won't help me until I start being more faithful in trust. And and this sort of comes around to the fact that this this listener, Michael, finds it difficult to speak of God as a father because of their own experience of, of having an abusive father. Yeah, I get that. And I have met this sort of situation pastorally before. And, and it's very, very sad. I remember one person that my wife and I were trying to counsel who had had very negative experiences with parents and who, in consequence, was finding it really difficult to have any kind of warm response to God, God's self, if I can use the God self language. Um, and it really appears that for some people, the level of emotional response has been so squashed or crushed or damaged by all sorts of things that have happened to them through, as we say, no fault of their own, that they do not, they aren't, they are not able to feel the joy and liberation and, and a sense of God smiling at them, which many other people do feel. And Part of me wants to say, that's okay, God understands all of that. Um, that may not help, but it's a way of saying um, we're always in danger of imagining to be a real Christian. You're supposed to feel happy and content and um, knowing exactly where you are with God all the time. And quite clearly in the Psalms, that simply isn't the case. And I, I would say to such a person, please use the Psalms. And when you find Psalms which are about lamenting the apparent absence of God and finding it difficult to trust God and, and shaking a fist in God's face and saying, why is all this going on? Have I done something wrong? Take some, a Psalm like 44 um, uh, and just pray that again and again. That's okay. The Psalms are there for us to inhabit um, and they give us a place to go and live um, spiritually, emotionally, when we are in these particular different moods or, or situations. And after all, throughout human history, terrible things have been done by rulers, by parents, by authority figures to small people who then grow up scarred and damaged by them. It's happening to this day in many countries, alas, and the whole refugee crisis is going to produce an entire generation of people who are um, lost and alone and wondering who on earth they are and so on. And I want to say God embraces all of that, but the embrace of God doesn't mean that they will all immediately become happy, contented, Western-style Christians. Um, no, it just doesn't work work like that. God's embrace should be the embrace of the whole church 
assuring people by the welcome to them which the church offers and the the ready acceptance of them and the sharing in fellowship with them that whatever is going on in the turmoil emotionally they are in fact loved and valued members of God's people and this is something which we in the modern west have been very bad at because we've thought individually about I am a Christian so I should have this relationship with God oh yeah I go to church on Sundays or I go to a fellowship group but that's just kind of to get together for fun on the side no the whole point of the church, Romans 14 and 15, is that the welcome we offer one another, including those who are broken and damaged for whatever reason, that welcome is the literal embodiment by the Spirit of God's love. And it's within that context that people, sometimes not always, can then find that bit by bit, little by little, they are, as it were, warmed up and able to trust and able to believe in a way which mm. without that simply wouldn't be the case. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your question, Michael. And, and as ever, um, as you've rightly acknowledged yourself, um, we can only give a brief answer here. Do find the, the wise counsel of a, perhaps a, a Christian counsellor, someone who can help you uh, walk through these issues yourself in your life. But, um, but our prayers are with you. Final question here, and it's uh, really the same question from two different people. It's about the fact that Jesus encourages us to pray to the Father. But uh, Dawood in uh, Mulumba, uh, sorry, Dawood Mulumba in Oxford and Daniel in New York both have uh, similar questions here. Uh, Dawood asks, the Lord's Prayer directs Christians on how to pray. And Jesus appears to guide them to direct their prayers to the Father. But why? If Jesus directs Christians to address their prayers to the Father, why do I hear Christians praying directly to Jesus? Is it that Christians don't understand the Trinity? And a similarish question again from Daniel in New York. My question is on our relationship to God the Father through God the Son. John 14.6 says no one comes to the Father except through me. Does that mean when we pray to the Father that we pray through Jesus? Or did Jesus in his incarnation open up a direct line between us and the Father? Or are these just different ways of describing the same thing? So... Yes, go, go ahead, Tom. These, these are great questions. And the, the great Christian tradition says you pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Um, and there is a kind of logic to that. Uh, and then the logic seems to disappear already in the New Testament when some of the early Christians invoke Jesus as Lord and say, Our Lord, come, Maranatha. That is a prayer to Jesus that he will come. And at the end of the book of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. That is a prayer to Jesus that he will return, that he will reappear. And so it's as though Jesus becomes the lens through which we see the Father, but um, as we're looking at Jesus, it makes sense to invoke him as well. And simply calling on Jesus as Kyrios, Lord, um, is, is a way, is a form of prayer. And uh, so when um, you, you get it throughout the Gospels when Peter is sinking in the water and he says, Lord, save me. From very early on in the church, that is interpreted as a prayer to Jesus, um, addressed as Kyrios, which in Greek can just mean master or sir, but is also the word which in the Old Testament Greek translates the personal name of God, Yahweh, that every tongue should confess Kyrios, Jesus Christos, that Jesus Messiah is Lord in the sense of the God of the Old Testament. Um, mm. Now, the question of the Trinity is actually 
well approached through prayer. I, I've talked in the answer to a previous question about that amazing passage in Romans 8, where our prayers are somehow the place where the Holy Spirit comes and prays within us, and the Spirit praying to the Father forms us according to the shape and pattern of the Son. And that mystery of how prayer means that we are somehow caught up as part of God's triune life, which seems very scary and odd, um, but that has actually been taken up in the Eastern Christian tradition, particularly where the prayer of um, uh, of many, many Eastern Orthodox saints and holy people um, has actually been a sense of being part of the inner life of God. And it's out of that tradition that, that, that you then find the so-called Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know some Christians who say, well, that's a bit off because we really should be praying to the Father. People who have used the Jesus prayer a great deal. I think of the late, great Bishop Simon Barrington Ward, lovely, wonderful, deeply spiritual man. Simon practiced the Jesus prayer day by day by day. And he was he was a luminous saint, if I can put it like that. There was a sense of stillness and wisdom and, and happiness and glory about him. And for him, that Jesus prayer was not praying to Jesus over against praying to the Father. It was a way of praying through Jesus in the power of the Spirit in the presence of the Father. And so I think we shouldn't be too fussy about have we got our Trinitarian theology right at this point, as though the important thing was to get the theology right rather than the prayer right. You know, the mm. prayer is absolutely central. And um, I, I would say there's a deep mystery there. And what I do find awkward is when people praying aloud without really thinking about it switch to and fro in the same sentence between addressing Jesus and addressing the Father. I vividly remember somebody um, who I knew and loved um, starting off a prayer, Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father. And I remember thinking, uh, no, can't do that. Um, but But people refer carelessly. And I think we, we need to be disciplined and wise about our prayer life because it does reflect what we what we really believe. Well, thanks for all the questions today on issues around the fatherhood of God. Um, as ever, if you want to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do that through the website. We'll make sure to announce it at the end of today's programme and uh, you can send your own questions in. But for now, thank you very much uh, from one father to another, Tom, <laughs> on this occasion uh, for being with us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on this week's show. Next time, forgiveness is what we're talking about. Things like, is there an unforgivable sin? Uh, do we forfeit God's forgiveness if we don't forgive? Um, and what about those who die without accepting Christ? Do they get a second chance at forgiveness? I uh, look forward to you joining us for that one same time next week. Uh, all of Tom's teaching from Unbelievable the Conference earlier in the year is available, of course. If you want to get your hands on that, uh, then why not go to the link with today's show and get hold of it? It was a wonderful day of um, teaching, uh, Q&A, uh, conversations with people like Tom Holland. So again, uh, that's with today's show. And uh, if you want more from the show, askntwrite.com is the place to go. We'd love to send you our show ebook if you're able to support us as well. All of the links from today's show notes for now. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.